may be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy, again, since we've dealt with, uh, we closed down our study in Daniel, and then I got to thinking about this week with uh, Kingdom Chronicles happening, and all that that did, and then uh, 4th of July, I thought, you know, it'd be good to just see uh, see a little, does anyone have a Kleenex? There's some pop here or something, and it's actually, anyone have a Kleenex? <laughs> it's like all over my message now, <laughs> a little bit, not much, but if someone has a Kleenex, that'd be great, thank you. So 4th of July and everything else. Uh, I thought it would be good to, to see, you know, what does God say as far as being a soldier? Second Timothy chapter 2. It says, therefore, and whenever Ben approaches me, you always, I'm always like cautious. Verse 3, Second Timothy 2.3, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You'll notice that he's given some analogies. He starts out in verse 1, just being that he says, My son, be strong in the, in the grace that is in Christ. In verse 2, he talks about being a discipler. Again, verses 3 and 4, a soldier. And then verse 5 is an athlete. Verse 6 is a farmer. He's drawing on some, uh, saying, now, this is what the Christian life is. And we're not going to look at all of them. All we're going to look at is, what does a, a good soldier look like? What does a soldier think? What does a good soldier do? How does he act? Who does he seek to please? Uh, I had the, the uh, privilege, my wife and I, a couple of the kids, of uh, going to see the uh, civil reenactment over at uh, Lane's Mill here a few weeks ago. And it was a beautiful day, and, you know, where we stood, we can actually watch the battle, and there, there comes the Confederates at the Union guys, and they're being shot. And, uh, of course, the North won. Ooh. But the 21st Georgia. And so we watched that whole thing. It must have taken about 25 minutes or whatever. And, uh, you know, you just think to yourself, man, how gory that would have been in real life. And then afterwards, you went up to the, uh, you know, where they worked on people in the hospital. And uh, I was talking to the one guy there, and he, he was saying, you know how fast they could literally remove an arm, sew it up, and get the next guy on the table? In the time that we just sang our song, 15 minutes. Every 15 minutes, they could literally go through that entire process. And I thought, well, you know, he's going to tell me that most of the guys died. He said, no, actually, I think he said 80-some percent lived through that process of amputation. And I said, man, you know, they didn't understand microbes. They didn't understand germs and all that. They didn't have all the technology. How is that? Well, you got to remember, these boys grew up on the farm. They had already had a lot of the diseases, already had a lot of the germs hit them. And so when they had their arms and legs cut off, many of them were able to survive. But again, um, watch that. And then right beside that tent was the undertaker. Listen to him. And uh, very, very interesting. The thing that I, I, I thought, though, you know, the, the one thing that's really missing out of this whole reenactment is this, though, groaning. Can you imagine if it was real? The amount of groaning 
the amount of pain. Now again, we had some people screaming. I know my son Caleb, he was, they said, well, he, he really screams well. Because <laughs> he, was, he was one of them that, that they brought in as though he had had his leg or whatever shot off. And, you know, and as they were amputating him. Um, but the point was, you know, it was a reenactment. And the real pain was not there. But for real soldiers who really get shot, who really have to have their legs amputated, then again, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of agony. Because why? It's real. It's real. You can die or you can be maimed for life. And you know, when it comes to Second Timothy, I want you to think about this. When it comes to our life and you being called as a soldier to the, to the war, the spiritual battle... It's real. And there is real pain. This is not a reenactment. And you don't get to do it a second time. We can make choices and decisions that will affect us for the rest of our life, even the rest of our eternity. So we have to take this very, very serious. You have been called into God's army. We are soldiers. So when, when Paul says, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, he's talking to Timothy, but he's also talking to us. We are soldiers in God's army. And the consequences can be lifelong. And I just want to give you six uh, specific things about being a good soldier. Okay, so And I left a few blanks, just the main points. So if you want to fill some of these in. The first one is this. A good soldier knows he is a soldier. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty simple thought. He repeats it twice. Verse 3 says a good soldier. In the end, he says him who enlisted him as a soldier. The point is, is that we have to recognize the fact that we really are a soldier. Again, I'm sure that in the last maybe two or three, four months, you probably haven't even thought about that in your own life. Yeah, I'm a soldier of Jesus Christ. We forget that many times. Oh, I'm a child of the king. Oh, I'm a son of, the, a son of God, you know. Um, Oh, I'm a joint heir with Christ. No, no, we are called to be soldiers. Run the race well. We are a soldier. We're not civilians. By the way, civilians act differently than soldiers. Right? You know, civilians have a good life. Civilians expect to be comfortable. Actually, soldiers don't expect to be comfortable. If you're really a true soldier, if any of you have actually had to fight, you're not looking to have it pleasurable and comfortable. Uh, the mindset of a soldier is different, but what a soldier is expected to do is to be remain faithful, even during hardship. And he mentions that, and we're going to look at that in a moment. He's expected to be courageous. He's expected to be bold. There's supposed to be camaraderie. I got your back. You know, the band of brothers mentality. That's why he calls... Timothy, to a good soldier, that word good is the same exact word for good shepherd referring to Jesus Christ. It's the word kalos. And the reason I'm saying that is this. When it comes to Jesus Christ, he is considered the good shepherd. In other words, intrinsically good. He has the heart of a good shepherd. We, on the same hand, need to have the heart of a good soldier. It has to be intrinsic. That word, kalos, good, points to internal, not just external, not just that we look good on the outside, but our heart attitude is that of a soldier. In fact, that word good could be uh, translated excellent. But the idea is that our inward motivations, our drive, is like a soldier's. I believe this, that much of Christian counseling could be eliminated if, if we just accepted the fact that God called us to be a soldier. 
Because sometimes we whine about the minor things. We leave relationships over the least of things because we haven't got it in our mind that we're soldiers. We somehow thought, well, I received Jesus Christ, now I need all the goodies. The goodies don't come until we die. This is hard stuff right here. This is hard stuff when it comes to living in a wicked, sinful world. So the first thing is we have to have the mindset of a soldier. He knows he's a soldier. And number two, a good soldier knows that he is a soldier, what? In a war, because verse 4 says, no one who is engaged in warfare. It's one thing being a soldier. It's another thing saying I'm a soldier in a warfare. Um, they say that soldiers, and again, I never was uh, had the privilege of being in the armed forces, but they say that a, a good part of the time, if you've been in the uh, uh, armed forces, you know this, much of the time is downtime. It's not like you're fighting 24 hours a day. But the point is, is that we have to have the mindset, and they have to have the mindset, but you know what? The battle is always there. I just may not be actively engaged in it in the moment. See, the good soldier knows he is a soldier in a war. Paul often used the metaphors of, a, of fighting or soldiering or warring. Like First Timothy 6, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight. Referring to be a, being a soldier. Or Romans 7 says that our flesh and war is against the law of my mind. So even in the spiritual sense, and that's the primary sense anyways. You know, that uh, the, the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, Galatians 6 says. So Paul often uses this, and I think it's on purpose. He wants to keep reminding us as believers, hey, it's not supposed to be comfortable on this earth. It's not supposed to be where, um, you know, everything goes your way and all that. I mean, there's a, there is an enemy out there, Satan. There's an enemy out there, our own flesh, the world. And there's this constant battle. And the battle is in the realm of ideologies, the uh, truth versus error. In fact, in Ephesians 6, he specifies, again, that the war is not physical but spiritual. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. This is Ephesians 6.10. And in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes, as it were, of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't, in fact, that word wrestle is hand-to-hand combat. We don't hand-to-hand combat with the flesh. We can't see our enemy. <laughs> but we do have hand-to-hand combat, but it's not in a spiritual sense, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So our struggle is not against, the spirit, uh, is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. I, I like reading about battles uh, periodically. I'll, I'll just try to do a little research. But one that's always, in American history, this is, this is a huge one, but it was the, um, the battle at uh, Little Bighorn. The point is this, George Custer recklessly led his men against a much larger force of, of Sioux and Cheyenne warriors and totally wiped out, I think it was 200 some people. Totally got wiped out, but that was because he was unprepared. He thought just out of pure motivation, just out of courage, he could destroy and, and win the battle. And the reality was he got, he got whooped. You know, sometimes we think just because we have a good right attitude, we can win the battle spiritually. The reality, though, we need to have the power of God. We need to have the whole armor of God on. 
I think of one other illustration. It was during uh, World War II at the very beginning when the Nazi blitzkrieg rolled through Poland. And what happened was the Polish cavalry thought they could actually stand up against the panzer tanks. And they rode out in all their courage and valor and got totally destroyed. In fact, every, every one of them died. Why? Because you can't put a horse and a rifle against a panzer tank with, that has a machine gun. Now, we would say, isn't that foolish? What were they thinking? And yet some of us go through this world, we wake up in the morning, and we forget that we are soldiers, that this world wants to destroy us, that Satan wants to destroy us, that the flesh wants to destroy us. We do not arm ourselves with the armor of Ephesians 6, and then we wonder why we feel defeated, why we are defeated. In fact, let's look at Ephesians 6 for just a moment. We don't have much time to look at it, but... Ephesians chapter 6, we see the uh, armor of God. Let me just point out a couple of things I find interesting. And as far as literal soldiers, verse 14, it says, Having gird your waist with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. By the way, that's truth. Living out righteousness is ver- the second part there. In other words, this... You know, we always think of the armor as something that you, you know, Paul's just saying, look at, look at the soldier. You remember the soldier, but there are spiritual implications. Uh, gird your waist with truth. In other words, understanding the truth of the gospel, the truth that there is error, there is truth. A breastplate of righteousness, so the arrows, the spears could not pierce the vital organs. In other words, I stand in the righteousness of Christ because one of the things Satan wants to do is this, get you to, to try to stand in your own righteousness. We have to keep going back to the breastplate of righteousness that says, you know what? I stand in the righteousness of Christ. I am going to fail, but I stand in his righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that we stand strong in the gospel, that again, we stand in his righteousness, his peace. It's interesting. Those three things were always on a soldier. They slept, actually, with the, the, the true, uh, the, um, uh, the breastplate on and even the shoes. They would not, you know, they didn't uh, get into a warm, comfy bed. But the things that they didn't, so those were always on the soldier. But the things that they didn't always have was, verse 16, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Those would be put on at the moment of battle as they saw the enemy coming. There are some things that we are always prepared in. There are some things that are there that we grab, as it were. Shield of faith, certain things, certain darts that come at us. We have to answer through the word of God. The helmet of salvation, that it's secure. That our salvation is secure. That it cannot be lost. But then the only offensive weapon there is the sword of the Spirit, which is, he says, thankfully he tells us, which is the Word of God. Now, what am I trying to say? And again, I just ran through that very quickly. I'm saying this. If we want to have victory spiritually, we have to be prepared. And it all revolves around this one very simple truth. The gospel. Okay? The gospel of Jesus Christ. What saves us, holds us. And by that, we can have victory over the evil one. Again, we have to remember that it's not just, um, you know, good intentions. The, 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 the cavalry had good intentions to try to beat the panzers, but they lost. Custer had good intentions, but he lost, lost his life. We, sometimes Christians, have good intentions. I want to stand for the Lord. I want to be strong in Him. And we've got to put on the armor. We've got to be uh, dependent on Him and see His strength. 
uh, worked out through us. It's not just good intentions. So the point is this. If you get up in the morning and you're not, you don't prepare your heart and remind yourself that you stand in Christ's righteousness, that there is truth and error, that, God, that uh, Satan wants to destroy you, put on the breastplate of faith and says, you know what, but everything that was happened on the cross has been applied to my account. And when I see error, I'm not going to fight it on my own terms, but it's going to be according to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I need to get into the Word of God. And look at the verse 19. No, verse 18. Praying always, and he, and he puts the, you know, all the different aspects of prayer. Because prayer is what holds the armor together. And so I get up in the morning, and I study God's Word. I meditate on God's Word. I pray and ask God to apply it to my heart. And now I am ready for battle. Are you ready for battle? Or do you just kind of get up, get to work, and forget all to the, the entire fact that you are a soldier in a war? We are. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we see what this war is really all about. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For the pulling, now this is the key word, for the pulling down of strongholds. That word strongholds is fortresses. And then verse 5, he gets a little more specific. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. So really, where is the warfare fought at? It's with fortresses and speculations and arguments or thinking. In other words, the warfare, the war that we're, it's a war of truth. <laughs> what we're fighting in this world is, is a war of, against truth. Satan wants to deceive. I mean, we just saw another big thing happen this week in the Supreme Court, right? We're trying to figure out what is marriage. You know what the truth of it is? Genesis, one man, one woman. That's it. That's easy. Let's go on to something else. Because our world is saying, no, oh, I'm not sure. By the way, you open it up to uh, man, man, then it's going to be man and two women, and two women and one man, and one man and two women, and one man and a dog. Because we can't figure out what marriage is. But there's all kinds of wars going on for truth. By the way, it's interesting. Spiritual warfare cannot be successfully fought with any fleshly weapons. Be careful, because sometimes I think we're trying to vote morality in. It's not, it's, it's a spiritual battle. I'm not saying not to vote. I'm not saying not to call your congressman. Just be careful how much hope you have in it. And we will see what God wants for America. To successfully fight the spiritual war requires weapons from a heavenly arsenal. In other words, these strongholds that he's referring to in verse uh, 3 or 4, excuse me, it was used of a prison or a jail. In other words, the idea is this. People are kept in prison, kept in jail, kept in their own strongholds by the lies and deception of the world, by the lies and the deception of uh, Satan. Do you, do you know of anyone that has been kept in their own little prison because they have believed the lies and the deceptions of the world? And what is our purpose? Our purpose is to go with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and to get them out of there. What? By speaking truth to them. That's how, that's how we release a person from the prison of deception, the prison of lies and falsehoods. I forget who actually wrote this quote, but one man said this, and I think it's a very, very important, as we look at strongholds, he said this, the strongholds in view here are not demons, 
but are ideologies. The notion that spiritual warfare involves direct confrontation with demons and Satan is foreign to the Scriptures. So when we talk about spiritual warfare, we're not talking about battling Satan. Christians who verbally confront demons waste energy and demonstrate an ignorance of the real war. We're not supposed to speak against Satan and speak, you know, territorial demons and all that. We are not called to confront demons. We're not called to cast them out. We're not called to speak against Satan. We're not called to argue with Satan, etc., etc., etc. But what are we called to do? Stand for truth and see sinners converted and believers matured. That's what we're called to do. Sometimes we get in the wrong... I say we, I'm not saying we here. But again, it seems like so much energy is used with certain parts of Christianity in this idea of spiritual warfare. He ends by saying, The battle is rather with the false ideologies men and demons propagate. The schemes... Satan disguises himself, Corinthians says, as an angel of light, so that the world believes them. The world actually believes what Satan has has said. He ends by the saying, Doomed souls are inside their fortresses of ideas, which become their prison and eventually their tombs, unless they are delivered from them by the belief in the truth. And we're the ones that carry the truth. So we have to see ourselves as soldiers carrying the truth. And you think, man, look at all the things that we have to proclaim. Proclaim that this book is the only book that God has ever written, right? Boy, that's a, that's a thought that the world rejects. And that this book points to what? One Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we are all sinners and condemned before a holy God. And yet God the Father sent God the Son to be a sacrifice on humanity's behalf. And that by receiving Him, we can be forgiven. We need to proclaim that. In fact, I felt that during the uh, VBS week, that was proclaimed very clearly. We, we need to proclaim even the sanctity of marriage. How about the sanctity of life? That, you know, we're, we're battling whether it should be 26 weeks we can have an abortion or 20 weeks. How about that you shouldn't have an abortion? That it's a life. But the life may not be uh, viable. I mean, it may not be productive. It's a life. It's a life. You know, there's so much. How about this? That there is literally a life after death. (laughs) See, what does Satan want? Satan wants this world to believe there is no absolute truth. There is no life after death. It really doesn't matter. Live for yourself. And by the way, one of the biggest reasons he can get away with that is this whole thing called what? Evolution. I trust that you do not have any any, um, pity or any type of, uh, what do you call it, uh, like, you know, a little bit of a, uh, appreciation for evolution. It is from Satan. Why? Because it says that you were just, you weren't created, you were not made in the image of God, you just happened, and, it's, and everything's by chance, and you are your own uh, creator, as it were, and you're your own judge. So in, again, in other words, if you're, if you're talking to a friend, and they say, well, you know, but I just think every, everybody, you know, we just evolved. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you're a soldier of Jesus Christ, you need to stop there right there. Uh, in the beginning, what? God. So you just say, well, so I believe I'm, I know I'm a soldier. I know I'm in a war. Number three, a good soldier knows he, is, he will suffer hardship. That's why he says endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure, be willing to endure hardship. Hardship. 
We can't not think of ourselves as just a civilian. Just like, well, God is going to make it easy. God wants me to be comfortable. That's not true. I was uh, reading a book on divorce. Not that they want now, but I just wanted to read it. But he asked this one question. He was going along and he says, and just in case I haven't convinced you that, that your suffering will be greater if you disobediently divorce, because again, God says he hates divorce, let me ask you one final question. And this question just hit me. It was like, whoa. I mean, just because it was so simple. He says, why are you unwilling to suffer for the Lord? See, this is written for people who want to, are thinking about divorce. And he just asked the question, why are you willing, unwilling to suffer for the Lord? In other words, if, if the Lord says this, I want you to remain married, even though that man may not be everything that you thought he was going to be when, you've, when you first uh, said, I do, or that woman did not turn out to be everything she th- said she would be at the moment of I do, why, would you, why are you unwilling to suffer for the Lord? Uh, well, certainly the Lord would not want me to be unhappy in my marriage. Do you see how we have lost the soldiering mentality right there? Rather than obedience, we're looking for comfort. I just found that interesting. You know, when Paul says, um, join with me in suffering for the gospel, now he's again primarily talking about the gospel, but also everything that the gospel stands for, the righteousness, the truthfulness of Christ, you know, sin, evil, righteousness, holiness, Again, God calls us to suffer. Sometimes the suffering, being obedient, is staying in the marriage. Um, If you think about war, especially I think about civil war, how often those men had to go without food because there was food shortage. They even had to go without proper shoes and clothing. I mean, all the different... And then they they had to go without... uh, If they were fighting in the north as far as the... um, the, uh, the jackets and everything else. It wasn't an easy life. Again, it's not an easy life. I think one of the areas that you're going to be tested in as far as being a soldier is found in Luke 17. Why don't you go to Luke 17 for a moment? Again, I could draw all kinds of ways. I could give all kinds of examples of how you need to you know, be willing to suffer. I need to be willing to suffer. I could talk about finances. I could talk about relationships and how sometimes, you know... Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to suffer, uh, being bold at work with the gospel and, and your witness. But, you know, one of the ways that we need to suffer, suffer, one of the hardest things in the Christian life to do sometimes is this whole area of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, I, I say this because of recent, I've had to be, re, I've been rethinking about this, this whole thing of forgiveness. Look at verse 3, Luke 17, 3. Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. Now, you know what forgiveness means? And that particular word forgiveness means this. This, right here. Release. Do you know how painful that is for some people to release the sin that someone else has done against them? To truly release it. People want to hold on to it. When I was thinking about this idea of a soldier... Endure hardship. I think that's enduring hardship right there. That someone has deeply hurt you and you would, be get, you would get to a point out of obedience to Jesus Christ to release that. To truly release it and that you're not going to bring it back. By the way, this is a hard concept. 
Look at verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now notice what the apostles said to the Lord. Increase our faith. You know what they were saying? We need more faith. That is so difficult. We can't even imagine. We need more faith. Increase our faith. What does he say? He actually rebukes them by by the example. You don't need more faith. He says this, verse 6, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, that was the smallest little seed. In other words, he, he, he said this, if you even have pure faith, just the smallest amount of pure faith, you don't need any more faith. You just need obedience. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. I mean, you don't need more faith, you need obedience. There's a big difference there. Well, how do I know that he really is is, uh, repenting? How do I know that they won't do that again? Do you realize how, how that hurt me so bad? Well, I know. That's why they said increase our faith. You don't need more faith. You need obedience. In fact, to prove his point, he, he gives us this illustration, verse 7. And which of you having a servant plowing and tending sheep will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. Now, think about the servant out in the field. They've been working since 6 in the morning and 6 at night. They've been, they're dirty. They're hungry. They're thirsty. But it's the servant not the master that's coming in from the field. And they maybe even have some, you know, they're, they're uh, sunburned and, and all this. And, and how many masters would tell the, you know, come on in and sit and eat? No, that's not the way it goes. Verse 8, but he will not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper. That's the master speaking. And gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk. And afterwards you will eat and drink. So master is served first, then the servant. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded to him? I mean, is he going to be, oh, you're such a great servant, man. You get a gold star. No, he's not going to say that. He doesn't thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him. I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all these things, what things? When you're willing to rebuke your brother, when you're ready to confront your brother, when, you, when they repent and you're willing to forgive your brother, when you do all these things that I've commanded you, by the way, they're all in the imperative, verse 3. What are you going to say? Well, which they just commanded. We are unprofitable servants. We've done what was our duty to do. <coughs> I, I want to challenge you today. Is, Is there some part of your life where there has not been forgiveness granted? (laughs) In other words, as I look at what a soldier has been called to do is to endure suffering. And sometimes that is the willingness, the willingness to release the offense that someone else has done against you. And you're willing to just say, no, I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. Now, Matthew says this, if, you, if you're at the altar and you realize that someone else has, your brother has something out against you, leave your gift at the altar, go basically be reconciled to your brother, then come back and give, in other words, worship. So it's, it goes this way. It goes either way. If you know someone has something against you and it hasn't been resolved, then it's that you, then you need to go and seek to reconcile. In other words, you're going to your brother and saying, you know what, I have... I have hurt you. I have, I have angered you. I have done something that is actually sinful against you. Will you forgive me? But if you have been uh, offended 
and that brother doesn't even know it, then you're called upon as the offended to go. And in other words, in either scenario, we are called to reconcile. We should be a church right here that is fully reconciled with everyone out there. If at all possible, live at peace with all men. When I think of soldiering, you can go back to Second Timothy, I think one of the biggest things that sometimes just, it miss, it, it, it's not even on our radar, is this whole thing about forgiveness. Because what forgiveness does is this, I release you from the hurt. I release you from the resentment that I've had towards you. I release you from the bitterness that has been in my heart towards you. I release you. That's not easy. It's easy to keep it. In fact, I was reading another book by the same author on bitterness. I've been doing a lot of thinking through some different issues, but we've got to move on in a moment. But he, he talked about the evidence of bitterness. I wonder if any of us as soldiers of Jesus Christ have this. Difficulty in resolving conflicts, just very difficult. Withdrawal. A heart of vengeance. Just outbursts of anger and we don't even know where it came from. Barting, biting sarcasm. Condescending communication. I'm talking about the person we're angry with. Criticism. Suspicious, suspicion and distrust. Oh, this is an interesting one. Hypersensitivity. Impatience. Disrespect. Depression. It kind of goes on and on. The point is this. As I read some of them and then thought about my own life, I thought, you know what? There is tinges of bitterness in my own life. There were certain points that I had to deal with. A good soldier understands, you know what? I'm not a civilian. This is hard stuff. And some of the hardest stuff has to do with my own brothers and sisters in the Lord. And sometimes we get into conflict. We don't even realize it. A word is said, something happens, and there's an offense taken, and we don't even realize it as the offended, I mean the offender. And then it just keeps growing, and it's, it ends up being like Hebrew says what? A root of bitterness, because it grows. And something that was very insignificant and not even uh, purposeful now becomes a division. And every time you see that person, you've already labeled them. And what happens is the army of God that should be very tight, a band of brothers watching each other's backs, we look across and, you know, there's all these little divisions or maybe even big ones. I think if we're going to endure hardship, one of the biggest things is this, is there reconciliation between my brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's where it starts. It can go beyond that to the unsaved, but it certainly should be with the, un, with the saved. Because we're, we're an army together. A good soldier is willing to pay any price to have the will of God fulfilled in his life. Any price. And it starts with reconciliation. So I encourage you, if there is that division, that you go and confess, or maybe you go and rebuke so that they would confess and that there would be true release and there would be true harmony in the body of Christ. Trust that's happening. How about the fourth one? A good soldier knows he is an active service. Active. Because verse 4 says, no one engaged in warfare. I liked what uh, Douglas MacArthur said. Every mistake in war is excusable except inactivity and the refusal to take risks. Risk. Without risk, there can be no victory or growth. There's risk. By the way, let me use that the previous illustration. You go into confront and they tell you, it doesn't matter. I don't want to deal with it. That's a risk you just took, right? Right? 
Have you ever wanted to see something resolved and the other person didn't want to? That's a risk you took. And by the way, it didn't come out the way you wanted. Life is risk, isn't it? In fact, I like what John, or John Piper said about risk. Quote, If our single all-embracing passion is to make much of Jesus Christ in life and death, and if the life that magnifies Him most is the life of costly love, then life is risk. And risk is right. To run from it is to waste your life. So what is risk? I'll further define it. I define risk very simply as an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. That's what risk is. It exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. (coughs) By the way, when you serve the Lord, there's a possibility of loss or injury in that sense. Loss, you know. I was watching these boys. Who was it? Uh, Ryan and Ben Clifford and uh, uh, who else? Help me out to these boys that were up here. Uh, Slade. Uh, in fact, one of them told me, he said, you know, when I first did this, I just didn't know how I was going to remember the whole uh, skit. But, but it came to me. <laughs> that's, how, that's how ministry happens. That's how using your gift works, Right. You say yes to teaching, you say yes to calling that person, you say yes to writing that letter to an encouragement or showing up at the hospital bedside and you go walking in like, I'm not sure how it's going to work. I don't have, Lord, help me. And then you walk away. Oh, that was so great. By the way, the temptation at that very moment is to forget that you prayed and that God answered the prayer and it was His strength that allowed you to do that. That's the temptation. We walk away saying, man, you know, I did such a great job. No, it was the Lord working through you, right? I believe those boys realize that. Boy, Lord Lord can use you. But you know what? The risk sometimes is failure. You know, like maybe I'll fail. Yeah. It's active service. What is God calling you to do right now? Maybe he's been knocking on your heart and you just keep saying, no, I couldn't do that. Probably that's true without his help, without his, his strength in your life. How about the fifth one? A good soldier knows he must avoid entanglements. Entanglements. We are almost out of town, so go to First John 2 for a moment. What are some entanglements that this world can throw at us? John the Apostle gives us some very clearly. The first one is the entanglement of loving this present world. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world. That's this present world or the things in the world. By the way, he's not talking about loving the people. He's saying don't love the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, the world competes for our love. Don't love the world. But then he, he, he tells us what he's referring to. In other words, being fulfilled by the world. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, that's the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. By the way, see if these are in your life. These are entanglements. These make us not good soldiers of Jesus Christ when these are in our heart. The lust of the flesh refers to... Bodily appetites, more specifically, illicit bodily appetites. Sex, food, health, health, uh, body image, you know, all the things, you know, what the world says is important. If you buy into that, you're not going to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, how do I look? Am I being accepted? 
That's all the lust of the flesh. How about the, the lust of the eyes? That word lust, by the way, means desires or cravings. Lust of the eyes means greed. Grasping. It refers to materialism, covetousness, always wanting more. In other words, never satisfied. And the world just says, you know what? If you really are successful, you've got to keep getting and getting. You know, you don't need just one car. You need two. No, you need three. No, you've got to have a camper. And then you've got to have... And by the way, if you have a camper or three cars, it doesn't matter. That's not the issue. <laughs> yeah, I hate to say any illustration. Because you're, oh, you know, he's saying I'm sinful. You know, No, no. But if in your heart it's always more, then you've just been entrapped by the world. Because this is not home. By the way, if you do that, you will sacrifice eternity for now. Because the stuff that you could have given for the kingdom, for his work, will be spent on yourself. It's a great trap that that the world lays because in doing so, you're not fulfilled here and you don't get the rewards there. That's one of my concerns about, we're teaching Financial Peace University at night. You know, how to deal with your money. And one thing I want to make sure I put in this addendum, but it's not all about being financially wealthy. There's a few things Dave Ramsey says that is not correct. It's about being financially responsible, being a good steward. But it's not just about ending up with a lot of money because it's not all about here. That's the lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life is boasting of what you do have and proud of it, showy. I mean, see what I have done, see what I have, see what I know, see whom I know. Do you kind of see where this, these are entanglements of a soldier? Because the world is passing away. That's the last entanglement. See, we need to find our security not from this world, because verse 17 says the world is passing away and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So don't get in, you know, with the, the passions of this world and the, the things of this world and always wanting more. And then, then the, you know, the pride of life says, and see what I have, see who I know, see what I know. All those things pass away. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then finally... A good soldier, and this is really the most important one of, of them all, okay? In the sense that this is our motivation. A good soldier knows above all else that he must please his commanding officer. He needs to please his commanding officer. Why? That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I really thought that word enlisted there was going to be the word called, like in Romans 8, you know, like we've been called to salvation. I really thought that word enlisted was going to be that. But actually, that word enlisted only appears one time in Scripture. There. And it's only used of one type of thing. People being enlisted as a soldier. <laughs> that's, really what, that's the only way that that Greek ver, uh, word is ever used. Literally, that's what Jesus did. Jesus called you. He enlisted you to be that one thing. Well, there's a lot of other things, but in this passage, as a soldier. When he saved Caden, you're a soldier, my friend. And you better think of yourself as a soldier and not as a civilian. There's going to be tough situations that I'm going to put you in, and I want you to stay focused and pleasing to me. What does Corinthians say? We make it our aim, whether absent or or present in the body, what? To be pleasing to him. Our target, our goal, our aim in this life has to be, I want to be pleasing to Jesus Christ. And and if, if we're a soldier, we just got to remember who's our commanding officer. And if you remember that, this is what makes it so easy. 
then we don't worry about what these people think about me. I don't have to worry about what you think I know or who I know or how much I have. All I have to worry about is one, one person. One, one thing, one main thing I have to keep in the that my audience is Jesus Christ. And you know what? If he's pleased, then I need to be okay with it, right? That's all I need to be worried about. Isn't that make, doesn't that make life simple for you? That just brings it right down to the very simple thing. You don't have to worry about your mother and what she thinks, or her father. Now, again, I'm not saying not to honor. Or even the other people in your life. Again, I'm not saying not to honor and respect and love. But when it comes down to pleasing, your focus only has to be on Jesus Christ if you're a Christian. Because he's the one that brought us in and enlisted us as a soldier. I trust that as we worship him right now, that you're going to sing to your commanding officer. And you're going to sing with a heart that says just this, Lord, I just want to be pleasing to you. As long as that happens, I'm okay with it. Let's stand and sing to him. I trust you're going to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he's the one that brings us into the into his family. Uh, afterwards, if you could stay for just a few moments, I want to remind you, we've got to break this down. I would hope in 15, 20 minutes we could have the props here and the pianos up there and at least eight strong backs we need for uh, lifting those pianos. Let me just close one final thought. That it says that we are able to please the Lord. Again, Corinthians says we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Now, some of you grew up in families where either it was your dad or your mother or both and your grandparents and whatever you did, it just never seemed like to be enough. And then you got involved in marriage and she tells you it's not enough and he tells you. And you go through life thinking, you know, nobody, I can't please anybody. It's always just constant, constant, you know. Maybe not, maybe that's not here. But I'm sure some of yours, that's exactly where you're at. I want you to think about this one thing. If you follow... Jesus Christ, if you are sensitive to what his spirit wants you to do, if you're willing to reconcile, if you're willing to say no to the world, Lord, I need your strength and dependence on him. You know what he tells you right there? You can be pleasing to him. You may, you may never have pleased anyone completely up to this point in life. You, you may look into your life and you say, well, that person isn't happy with me for that and that one. And yeah, he died you know, in a state like I always felt he was just critical. But I'll tell you this, the commanding officer, the one that purchased your salvation, drew you to himself, saved you completely, secure forever, you can please him in the present. That's what we call fellowship, First John. And I want you to be encouraged by that because it took me years to figure that one out, that I could actually be pleasing to Jesus Christ. Not that he goes like this, you know, blink like yeah, you're really not, but I'll say you are. No, I'm saying that he could look at me, and he does look at me, and I believe at this very moment, as far as me, he looks at me and says, yes, you are in fellowship. Now, by the way, I've sinned this last week. There's been a number of times I've had to confess my sins and even to other people. But the point is, is this. At this moment, I'm in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Through his blood, through his righteous, my righteous standing in him, I have done everything I know possible to be in fellowship with him and therefore I am in fellowship and I am pleasing to him. Isn't that a great thought? I can be pleasing to my commanding officer. I trust that that's where you are right now as well. Please don't look at God as he's never satisfied. He's just critically looking at me 
hoping that I failed, wanting to point it out, glad when he could. No, no. He wants you to walk with him in fellowship. And therefore, when you do, you're pleasing to him. That is such a, even a great feeling. Okay, I'm not a feeling oriented, but that is a great, yes, I am walking with Jesus Christ. Are you? I trust that you are. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for not only the hope of salvation, but the hope of fellowship right now, that we can be pleasing to you, that we can walk in the light as we are children of the light. Father, I pray for each one here that if they've never put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that today might be their day of salvation. But that if, if there are any believers here that are not walking in, in fellowship with you, that you would convict their hearts in the specific areas they need to repent of. Help them to then know that as they repent, that you forgive and that you restore them to complete fellowship, therefore pleasing to you. Again, Lord, we thank you for calling us to be soldiers and also giving us the power and strength to accomplish that through your wonderful Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Just thank you and guide us now in Christ's name. Amen.